LMT is a lens by which you assess all economic understanding. The street is full of corruption. It is baked in to every aspect of our society. 1900s, Lenin was predicting global finance capital would do all the things it's doing today. This is written over 100 years ago. All right, everybody, it is Steve, the Rogue Scholar, and I'm sorry I'm getting a little bit of a late start today, but man, work was kicking my ass. Um, so today I started with kind of a bit of a, a cheeky kind of uh, commentary here for our banner. You know, obviously that's Jim Ace Carey there as the uh, cable guy. We're titling this Down with the System, question mark. What I want to do is I'm going to talk to you a little bit about troubleshooting because we very rarely understand what's really impacting us. And this goes with not just monetary systems, but also with voting systems and systems in general, right? A system typically like a flow, it, it's a flow. It's something that goes into it. You have a sausage maker, you crank, and then out comes something, okay? And this whole concept of diagnosing problems and really understanding where the pain points are and where uh, risk is and where things are going to go wrong. Okay. It, it takes a lot because if you don't have a strategy for how to break the system into parts, how to, how to evaluate it at each segment in the chain, you end up coming up with some really stupid ideas. And, and this has been a problem of my own. For many, many years, when I didn't understand troubleshooting techniques and I didn't understand how to break things down into small components to evaluate, obviously, you know, you look at the monetary system and this is a big deal. How many people just go, oh, the monetary system and they don't know what they're talking about. Oh, the Federal Reserve. And they throw their hands in the air and they don't know what they're talking about. Are they, you talk about, well, did a vote and this and that. And they come up with these things. It's like bold proclamations completely wrong-minded and i think to myself you know football coaches on saturday or monday mornings after the weekend trying to explain to a room of people that don't really understand what goes into planning and executing a project a game plan a, anything right and they sit there and they try and explain why they're not concerned or what they're concerned about and people that have no idea of what it takes to get to that finish line, have a lot of ideas of why they're wrong, why it's broken, why it's not working as advertised, et cetera. And, and in fairness, the logic is that I've got to evaluate each play. I've got to evaluate each input. I've got to evaluate each output and make sure where the problem lies. Okay. And <clears throat> I say this because we have systems all over the place, systems everywhere. And what is the favorite thing that everyone says? Down with the system. We got to replace the system. We got to attack the system. The system, it's keeping us down. The system, system, system. But they don't know, have any kind of systems analysis. They don't break it down in piece parts. You know, as a technician years ago, I worked for the phone company and we would get these massive troubles like, whole bunch of phone lines or a whole bunch of data circuits that were out of order that were down. Okay. Trouble report came in hospital has got, you know, all, all circuits down, right? And you go out there and you realize, Holy shit, how do I find the problem? Cause everything's broken. Right. And so you go in and you look 
you look both ways. You take a meter and you look towards the field, as they say, and you look from the field and you look back to the prem and you troubleshoot. You look at the sections. You try to get an understanding of which way the problem is. Okay. And we don't do that. We don't do that. But anyway, for example, in this one, I was a cable splicer out at Fox Mill, Great Mills uh, area in um, Northern Virginia, right outside of Langley and all the rich people in McLean and all that good stuff. And the hospital had a midnight outage. And the outage was caused by a lightning strike that had hit the cable and had fried 9,000 copper pairs that were wrapped in paper. And because it had hit inside of this and it fried the paper, paper is conductive. I mean, all of a sudden water osmosis took over and totally made the whole cable shorted out. So we had to find where that cable was shorted out and you had to troubleshoot. You had to cut and prove. You had to take sections and look which way the problem was. And if you think about this, right, we always talk about what if the world loses confidence in the U.S. dollar? What if we lose confidence in the U.S. dollar? What if you, you see when you see all these what if statements and they're statements that really have no real value to them at all. People that really don't haven't got a clue what they're talking about. They don't really understand any of it. And so you have to evaluate, well, what is the deal? And so when I tell you that within the United States, inside of our country, Everybody that uses U.S. dollars in the United States has to pay taxes in U.S. dollars, okay? In other words, you come up to the teller and you say, I want to pay my taxes. And you say, but I've got 50 Bitcoin. And they say, I don't know what to tell you. You can't pay your taxes in Bitcoin. And they say, shit, okay. They run back home. They grab themselves some gold nuggets. And they say, hey, here's this gold. I want to pay my taxes. They say, you can't pay your taxes in gold, man. Sorry, I don't know what to tell you. Guy's back home. He says, well, what do I do? And so he comes back and he goes, can I write a check for to pay my taxes? And they say, sure, you can. Because your money coming through your check is in U.S. dollars. They take your bank account. They credit it. They take those dollars. They purge them. They delete them. They're done. They've done their job. You can't pay your taxes in anything other than U.S. dollars. Okay. So as you think about it, you go to work every day and you receive a paycheck payable in US dollars. You didn't have any say. So you didn't say, well, you know, I'd like to be paid in Bitcoin, even though some NFL players are saying, hey, I'd like to be paid in Bitcoin. But what is Bitcoin? Bitcoin is an envelope holding US dollars. That's it. It's not holding any value in and of itself. In and of itself, its fair market value is zero. It's nothing. It's vapor. It's not anything. There's no way to force redeem a Bitcoin. There's no way to guarantee it. In the U.S., though, your dollar, and just like if you go to China and you use a yuan, or you go to Japan and you use a yen, or you go to Australia and use the Australian dollar, Canada use the Canadian dollar, U.K. use the U.K. pound, right? You can only pay your taxes in the U.K., in pounds sterling. You can only pay your taxes in the EU in euros. You can only pay your taxes in Japan in yen. You can only pay your taxes in Canada and Canadian dollars. You can have a fat stack of US dollars sitting there and say, hey, I'd like to pay my taxes in Canada in US dollars. And they're going to say, yeah, you know what? 
we can't take your U.S. dollars. So you have to take those U.S. dollars and convert them to Canadian dollars. Why is that? If, if the if the value, if they have lost faith in the U.S. dollar or they whatever, you know, I mean, who cares? The fact is you have to change your U.S. dollars into Canadian dollars to pay, to pay your Canadian taxes. It's the same thing. Why is that? Why do you think if your U.S. dollars have value and they haven't lost faith in your U.S. dollars, why wouldn't they just take your U.S. dollars in service of payment of your Canadian tax? Think about it for a minute. Why wouldn't they? The reason is in the fiat system. The, the currency isn't used to be spent on something else. It's used for redemption, just like a coupon. And just like a coupon anywhere else, it's deleted, it's destroyed, it's trashed, okay? But what happens when you start doing business outside your borders? What happens when you try to do business with other countries? Well, modern monetary theory talks about having a free-floating fiat, fiat currency. So it ebbs and flows in the open market. You can do different things to strengthen your dollar. You can make your taxes more onerous so that people demand more in currency. You can make money more scarce by simply making people do more hard things to get money. You can change things around. You can have a loose monetary policy. You can do any number of things to change that, okay? But in the end, in the United States, all that it does is nothing because at the end of the day, when you pay your taxes, it's $1 for $1. Okay. That's it. $1 for $1 in tax because they delete them. They literally delete them. China deletes them. Japan deletes them. Australia deletes them. Canada deletes them. UK deletes them. All of them delete them. So if you're following this system, how does the system work? How does money get into the system, right? And we've talked about this, but I want you to think about it from a systems perspective. I don't want you to just think of, oh, Rothschilds or all oh, this, or what about faith in the dollar? Like a child, like an infant that doesn't know how to think. It's always, Instead of just, let me look at the circuit. Let me evaluate where the problems are. Circuit, Congress passes a bill. This is one way in. We're going to talk about all the inputs into the system. Congress writes a bill. New money is keystroked into the Treasury's accounts. The Treasury spends the money. New money now into the economy. Like you have a truck full of birds you open the door and all of a sudden they fly away. That's what you just did. You just created a bunch and you sent it on its way. Okay, that's that's the way Congress works. They debit an, a, a bank account at the Treasury and voila, the money goes to wherever it goes. And now new money is circulating in the economy. That's one. The next one is Congress passes a bill and it's always, it's a perpetual, what we call an automatic stabilizer. Every time something happens, every time some event trigger happens, unemployment, uh, inflation, uh, debt ceilings, whatever, there's always some automatic thing kicks in. 
automatic people go on unemployment they get unemployment insurance maybe they get food stamps whatever these are what they call automatic stabilizers they don't need to be relitigated every time they come to be they don't need to be relitigated they've already been passed and they're there in perpetuity until someone else writes another bill so that's another way automatic stabilizers so if we had a federal job guarantee we wouldn't need to write a bill every time new money is spent the job guarantee would soak up whatever unused labor is out there that wants a job and it would take that on without writing a new bill, new money would be spent. Okay. The other one, exactly like this, like an entitlement. So you look at uh, social security, every time it's time to pay a social security payment out, new money is spent. They don't have to relitigate that. Okay. However, if the government chooses to not spend new money, and all it does is tax money out of the economy versus spend new money into the economy, okay? You know, taxes delete currency. So if they're bringing it in as a tax and it's deleted, let's say there's this much money in the economy and you're not spending new money in or very little money in because of the automatic stabilizers that we just talked about. Now, all of a sudden, as the level of money in the bathtub, so to speak, stops, all of a sudden, you start dealing with austerity measures, you start dealing with recessions, you start dealing with all these other things, okay? So Congress then in turn, because they didn't have to debate it, the money isn't being spent. So what happens? Now somebody has to make decisions. They have to go to a bank and get credit. They have to do something to get money. And the only way, if the government isn't spending it in there and you aren't earning it in a paycheck, but even that doesn't create new money, a paycheck is just spending money that's already in the economy. Okay. You have to go and get bank credit or get a credit card or something to be able to do what you need to do if the government has stopped doing this. Okay. So think about that for a minute. New money. That's how it is. Always. So if, if the government, when it receives it as a tax, can't do anything with it, it's literally done its job. It comes back. Remember, we have double entry accounting. They record a reserve in one side. They have the other side, which is the new money that's being spent or whatever. So this is the double entry accounting reserve to placehold for new money spent. New money spent. When new money comes back around and received as a tax, comes together with the reserve, and they're wiped out. It's gone. It's gone. So if you think about that, this is the system. This is how the system works. There's a mystic up there wearing a big pointy hat and got a wand and everything and a big purple flowing robe and long gray weird beard and all this other stuff telling you, voila, you know, trying to make you believe that your taxes are going to fund the war, going to fund this, going to fund that. It's a lie. It doesn't work that way. Okay. So if it doesn't work that way, this is your system. Your money goes in, your taxes take it out, but then there's the messaging. Here's the system. Then over top of the system is the messaging, the lies, the lies that you're told, okay? If those lies tell you this stuff. You get a completely incorrect understanding of the way the system operates. And then you start talking about the system and start behaving as if the system behaves in this wrong, broken fashion. 
And so every possible thing you think you know, every idea you come up with, every possible solution to problems that involves money, you'll be wrong on because you didn't understand the way the money got there to begin with. And because you didn't understand that, you in turn made a zero-sum gain. Remember the bathtub. If you even out the amount spent with the amount taxed, you're always left with this thing, this, this weird balance. But the problem is, is that when the bathtub is draining more because you didn't spend enough in and you're still balancing it out with taxes, that thing still gets shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so you have very, very austere moments there. This creates austerity. This creates the fertile ground for recession and depression and so forth, okay? So again, you're tracing this out. You're saying, hey, money in was less than money out. In other words, we taxed more out of the system than we spent into the system. And when we go back to the bank money for a minute, if you take out a loan from a bank, joke you public, you go in there, you sign on the line that is dotted. You take out a $10,000 loan. Where'd the money come from? It came from thin air. Your bank keystroked it into your bank account, okay? Now, in the corresponding side, you have reserves that were picked up by the banking system. That's what the Federal Reserve does. It provides reserves. U.S. dollar reserves for banks for that other side of the aisle. So they buy reserves on the open market, okay? They buy it from each other. They swap with each other, okay? All these reserves do is facilitate transactions in the system. However, when these reserves that are in the system stay in that system and they don't get timed out, they don't get paid off, there's interest that is charged on these reserves. So interest keeps going up on the reserves. So they're always looking to close that loop, okay? In this case, when you pay your loan back, the loan itself zeroes out and all that the bank has left is money that the government already spent into the economy, not bank money, the government money. And the bank itself no longer has that loan on its books. It's no longer an asset or a li the liability of the bank. It's gone and it zeroes out. That's the system. The system works that way, okay? Now, cordon off the United States. If you say, where are we gonna find the money to provide any service you name? Any person needs employment, any possible thing for climate change, the, the very uh, disaster that's going on in Florida right now and is going to come back up to South Carolina and work its way up the eastern seaboard with uh, Hurricane Ian. Now what? What's going to happen, right? Where's the money going to come from to rebuild Florida or to rebuild wherever else this hurricane comes from? You see, this is what happened in not only Haiti, but Puerto Rico. And when you had that massive hurricane blow through Puerto Rico, because people didn't properly diagnose the problem, they didn't understand that the federal government could have made them whole instantly. They thought that they had to somehow or another raise taxes in Puerto Rico or something to be able to afford to fix this stuff. Instead, what did our government do? Our government sent down 
people to basically gut Puerto Rico, to sell it off, to privatize it, to fix it via private solutions. Because you didn't understand the way the system worked. You thought, oh, well, that, that's how it works. Oh, okay, then, then, then that's it. It's the same thing with Flint, Michigan. When Flint's water was screwed up and they didn't have the money to fix it, the federal government could have stepped in instantly, written a bill. Remember the one way I told you about getting money in there? Congress could have authorized spending for a disaster situation. The water in Flint is a disaster. It's a health concern. It's, a, it's horrible. Congress could have simply written a bill. It would have gone ahead to the Fed. Fed would have keystroked deposits into the Treasury's bank account. Treasury would have spent that money on whoever needed to be spent on to make sure that Flint's water was properly taken care of. That's simple. Anything extra beyond that's a lie. It's just useless. It's worthless. It's not system-oriented. Okay? So I want you to think about systems and subsystems. Okay? So at the macro, the big picture, that's where money creation typically ends up. Okay? The federal government creates the money for these big programs, whether it be the war machine, whether it be some project for building a bridge, whether it be roadways or whatever. So that's the macro. They, they give this money out, and then there's the next level down, micro. Micro being you didn't create the currency. Micro being you're using currency either from someone spending it to you or the government giving it to you. At that point in time, we're into the micro world. We're into the private sector, okay? We're into what do you do with this, okay? Now, states are subsystems within this macro system. So if you think about it, the state receives money from the federal government via bills that are spent. It also receives money from your tax dollars that they spend or that they collect in your local and uh, municipal jurisdictions. So this is a subsystem in the bigger system. The big system is the federal government, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, Congress, President. That's the big macro world. The micro world starts getting in there at the state level. Now, the states are saying, hey, we've got potholes. Hey, we don't have whatever. How do we get this money? Well, if the federal government didn't spend it, then they need to chase their citizens to get tax money, to get tax revenue. They need to either do that or they need to have some sort of a uh, bond or they have to have uh, some sort of a loan or, or something, right? But states all have balanced budget amendments. That means they need to run out and collect taxes or they will be in big trouble later. Okay. So states, when they tax, that tax money pays bills, literally pays bills. Okay. When the federal government spends money, it pays bills. That's how it gets money into the system by paying bills. Government creates the money to pay the bills. The taxes serve as one, really, really one purpose, one primary purpose. There needs to be an obligation, something that tethers you to the U.S. dollar. And the tether is the tax. Without the tax, you might be tempted to go to Bitcoin. You might be tempted to 
hey, I like Chinese currency better than U.S. currency. I might just collect Chinese currency. doesn't work that way. Okay. So once you understand that, you understand that states, if they don't collect enough in taxes, if they don't have enough investment in bonds, if they're not getting federal funding, states can go belly up. The federal government can never go belly up. Okay. So the system, money spent into the system by the federal government on a bill, on an automatic stabilizer. Okay. The other thing is when we do business abroad, when we do business abroad, they receive U.S. dollars when they buy, buy, you know, when they sell to us, they receive our U.S. dollars. They have a choice. They can either keep that money in the Federal Reserve, in a bond, collecting interest, or they can choose to get rid of their U.S. dollar holdings, put it out on the open market, and let someone else take them off their hands and trade it in for a different currency that they want to save in. And then the exchange rates apply. Okay. So ultimately, U.S. dollars, they don't really go to China. They stop at the central bank. The central bank converts it to whatever. They, in turn, have to have reserves in that foreign currency. So if you think about this, the system requires that different countries have foreign reserves if they're doing business in those communities. Think about that for a minute. They have to have it. This is why countries like the South American countries that you typically hear screwed up. They have issues because they have to have foreign, uh, they have to have foreign uh, currency, whatever it is, U.S. dollars to make their U.S. dollar denominated debt go away. They have to have those things. So when you think about it like that, okay, you got to understand that it doesn't really matter if they've lost faith in the dollar. If they want to do business in the United States, they have to do it in dollar-denominated transactions. Does this make sense? I mean, seriously, does it make sense? Does this help you understand better just this part of the system? So when you look and country A and country B are doing business with one another, what does a U.S. dollar do for somebody in China? Yeah, you can go to the Forbidden City or you can go to, you know, the different markets and you can use dollars because they will take dollars because there's a lot of people going through there that have dollars. But it doesn't really matter because in order to do business with the United States, they must have U.S. dollar denominated reserves. They must. It's not a desire. It's not a question of liking it. They must. And if they don't, that's when countries start having debt problems. And that's when they end up going to the IMF to get foreign reserves, to get currency. You know what I'm saying? Like, it, it's a matter of exchange. So in some of these smaller countries that have really, really limited sovereignty in terms of energy, food production, uh, you know, raw materials, whatever, they are highly dependent on other countries and they're highly dependent on doing business with them. If they don't have a strong currency, in other words, they have not developed their own sovereignty. They have not done the things necessary to have energy sovereignty or food sovereignty, et cetera. They're going to be at the mercy of markets. 
and markets are cruel and they always try to exact the most flesh for their transaction, okay? This is why the United States is the bully, if you will. But it's not. Very important to understand that there is, at the international level, there is a basket of reserves. It's not one reserve. It's not just the U.S. dollar. Unfortunately, a lot of people that don't, they're like, child, U.S. dollar, right? They they don't really think it through. But China, uh, Japan, uh, the U.K., the euro, there's all kinds of bass. In fact, let's see. Let's go out for the shit of it and do a quick search. Um, the uh, World Reserve Currency. And let's take a peekaboo at this for just a minute. And this actually might not be the worst thing ever. Yeah, here. I can... Uh, <laughs> One second, I'm trying to find an image that will do this for us so we can see. It's always funny how they do this stuff. I'm going to show you this. Hopefully this helps out a little bit. I mean, it's not perfect, folks. So give me give me a little bit of a slack here on this one. Um, Chrome tab. We're going to do this one here and click share. All right. So if you guys are looking at this, you see that the U.S. dollar, that's the primary world reserve currency. Why is that? Because... More people use it, whether it be for um, petrol purchases or just in general, the United States government, because of the Bretton Woods Accord, we became a dollar standard around the world, basically, during the Bretton Woods Accord, okay? It was a worldwide gold standard, they said, but it was really the dollar standard. So the dollar became ubiquitous throughout the world. But If you look over here, the euro... We're talking about 20%. This purple, 4.5 is the yen. This other one here, 4.5 is the pound sterling. The orange, this is the Aussie dollar, 1.8. This right here is the Canadian dollar. It's two. This 2.4 right here is just all the other ones mixed together. And this red one is the Chinese yuan. So you can see that there's a bunch of them, you know, and I think it's interesting. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to close this out as a matter of fact. Come back and tell you that when you think about people saying the world reserve currency, yes, the United States is the dominant world reserve currency. But what if suddenly China, instead of being only at, I don't know, what, what did it say? It was what? China was, uh, Chinese one is 1.1% of all the global reserve currencies. 1.1%. Aren't you fucking trembling about the demise of the U.S. dollar, right? So why does it matter? Well, what if the United States government was no longer the world reserve currency? What would happen to the system? 
What would happen to the system if the United States government suddenly had the U.S. dollar sitting at 1.1% or 2%, right? It wouldn't change much of anything because if foreign countries raise the cost of doing business with them, and it was in terms of the United States government purchasing, the United States government can literally create money for anything available for purchasing U.S. dollars. Ah, but what if they don't accept dollars? Well, they're not going to do business with the U.S., are they? Okay. Or let's just take it out of the United States for a minute because I know that, you know, dollar hegemony is a big deal. And it is a big deal for a whole bunch of reasons, which we can talk and we'll talk about in a minute. But if you think about the fact that all it's going to do is impact our ability to buy imports. Okay. If we can't buy imports, what happens to the United States? We can't import shit anymore. Suddenly, spigot's cut off. We can't buy anything else anymore from outside. What's going to happen? The United States will bring manufacturing back to the United States. Big deal. Because the money all starts from the government, right? So does it matter if we're the one producing it or someone else is producing it? Not in real terms. There's no reason we couldn't hire every single American in this country be it citizen, undocumented, whoever, we could hire every single one of them that we want. Federal government could do it without any problem, without a single tax dollar raised. We could hire them all. Okay, we could hire every last one of them. So we bring manufacturing back, big deal. Now what do we do? We've dirtied up the country. We've, you know, now we're bringing factories back, whatever. Fact is, is that we're at a different stage in evolution right now um we can choose for a variety of reasons to bring manufacturing back here and do it more sustainably and create less impact on the supply chains which is a whole different story that's another part of the system that we have to look at okay but it's not a monetary thing it doesn't have anything to do with money okay so we've lost world reserve status we are no longer in the game for that all we can do is sell our dollars on the open market to get foreign currency to do whatever, to get farm reserves in our system so that we can facilitate transactions outside of the U.S. But most likely what will happen is we would bring manufacturing back. We would start scalping mountains again, looking for real resources. We would start doing all the things that you need to do in order to extract the real resources to build the real things. Do we have massive resources in the United States with or without a reserve currency? Uh, yep. Does Russia have massive amounts of minerals and real resources with or without access to the U.S. dollar? Yep. Huh. So having world reserve currency just means it facilitates imports better. Okay, and what about all the other countries that have to import things? Well, if you've listened to some of our macro and cheese episodes, you understand that countries like Iceland and other South American countries and smaller countries, they have problems sometimes getting enough reserves to facilitate all the transactions that they need to 
facilitate. And a lot of times they have wealthy people in their nation with an outsized footprint that buy up a lot of foreign products that require foreign reserves that the government then in turn needs to have reserves to have facilitate. So yes, they go out on the foreign exchange market and get reserves, right? But obviously once you lose out on being the world reserve currency, once you're out of the mix, now all of a sudden somebody else is probably large and in charge facilitating transactions similar to what the United States was doing, okay? And whenever you're reliant on someone else to do something, you're also potentially at their mercy, right? If they decide that they're going to stop facilitating transactions, like what the U.S. did with Russia with cutting off access to the SWIFT system, has Russia stopped functioning? No. Are they still getting food to people? Yep. Are they still getting fuel? Yep. Are they still able to go out dancing and are they still able to go out and listen to great bands like Slaughter to Prevail? Yep. So what's the big deal? They just lost access to U.S. stuff. Does that impact them? Uh, Yeah, but why? Because they just have to change. So they get a replacement product that they go for instead of the one they were getting before that was purchased with us dollars now they get something else and they have china right above them or right next to them depending on your perspective that will provide those things that they couldn't have gotten elsewhere does that mean the u.s is in decline and can't do anything no does it changing no so the system is really about real resources it's not really about the money right so when we're talking about this stuff, if you're if you're not understanding the way the inputs, outputs, tools, and techniques flow, you're liable to get the wrong impression of how things go. And I want you to think about our voting system for a minute. You know, we oftentimes talk about how we have a democracy in this country. And so we start out, we have local elections, sure. But we have party politics at the national level. And that means that you're president, you know, is nominated by a, you know, superdelegates, delegates, whatever, representatives of all the voters, so to speak. There's no guarantee whatsoever that you will in any way, shape or form be able to, you know, get the person you want, even if you have the number of votes you need. And, you know, I think to myself, one of the most challenging aspects, if you will, of uh, how this works. And I will see if I can pull this image up. If I can, I have a picture that I'd like to show you guys. I don't know if I'm going to be able to, but I'm going to try. Um, and it ta- it's from the DNC. Uh, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the actual um, lawyer that supported the uh, the DNC during the discussion over Bernie Sanders and primaries and all that good stuff. And I can't figure out where it is. So I'm just going to go ahead. I'm going to pull it up and I'm going to read it to you because I can't pull it out the way I wanted to. So here's, here's what it says. DNC attorney, Bruce Spiva. There is no such thing as a Democrat. The DNC just encourages people to vote for the Democratic Party. 
No one has any right to an expectation of a fair election. If the DNC wishes to select a candidate in the primaries instead of a free election process, that is their right. Donating money to Bernie Sanders doesn't mean you thought that that money was going to assist him to win the primary. You have no right to think the DNC was obligated to follow their own charter and internal policy, internal policies about elections. And four, discussion of and any disputes with the DNC do not belong in a transparent process in a court of law. The DNC is a private association which should never be asked to engage in the discovery process or have to reveal any of its internal workings or strategies should they decide to select a candidate rather than to allow a fair election. So I want you to think about that. That right there. That right there, you think you know the process. You're going to vote, and you're going to get the candidate you want, and that's the way it works. And then the Electoral College sees what the voters want, and they pass it, and there you go. That's how it happens. Well, no, that's, that's kind of not exactly how it happens. I mean, how do you get a candidate? The DNC has no requirement whatsoever to run a primary at all. So the system in your brain does not match up with the system as it is. Okay, the same thing with going to school. The system you believe you're in says that if you go to 12th grade and you get your high school education and then you you go to college, that you, too, will be part of the American dream. You will be able to get a job. Because you got the proper training and now you're ready for the career of your lifetime, you're able to select what you want. Well, in practice, that's not true. People have lots of degrees, and because the system in the United States does not meritocracy, you know, doesn't use a real meritocracy, if, if you believe in a meritocracy at all, right, does not adhere to that. It adheres to the good old boy network. It adheres to a series of things that are convoluted and complex and really, at the end of the day, the employer has the right to hire whoever they want to hire. This is private property. So in your mind, you thought, I went to school, I got degrees, I'm a really smart person, I should be able to find a job with no, no problem at all. All your friends pat you on the back and encourage you and say, you're absolutely right. Hey, look, I got this job, require, job request here, and it says, must have master's degree, must have this, must have that. And you go through the process and all of a sudden they say, well, no, you don't qualify. You are not our candidate. We, we chose another candidate, right? In a battle of equals, we chose someone else. You have no recompense really whatsoever. You're just on the outside looking in. However, you bought into a system that told you you must go through grades kindergarten through twelve. And then to get a uh, good job, you must have a degree or whatever. That's, the, that's what they sell you. That's what they tell you. That's the system. They tell you, hey, go out there and support Bernie Sanders because what? We need money because they're telling you flat out that money that you donated to the DNC for Bernie Sanders isn't for Bernie at all. This whole primary is a fundraising mechanism for the overall party to run whoever they choose to be the candidate if they choose to follow any kind of electoral process whatsoever. They're not in any way, shape, or form obligated to do so, okay? So 
if you think about what I'm saying, the systems that we believe we know, the systems that we believe are in place are not the systems at all. They're a fairy tale. Almost every single one of these systems that we believe in, that we swear by, that we tell our friends about, that we just are certain we're correct on. They're fakes. They're, they're, they're child stories. They're, they're freaking bedtime stories. We tell people that are naive and they lap it up like it's fucking manna from heaven. Okay. But in reality, you must evaluate the system. You must pull apart systems, find where the break point is. If you know that taxes are deleted, you would be an absolute moron to believe that taxes pay for programs. You understand what I'm saying? Like if taxes are deleted, how is it possible that they pay for programs? Simple. Think about the system. Think about the break point. Think about breaking it down one by one. If you understand reserve accounting, a reserve is tallied here. The cash spent out is tallied here. When the cash comes back, it closes it out. It's double entry accounting, folks. This is the way it is. If you've ever managed accounting books in any way, shape, or form, ever even taken accounting in home ec or whatever at school, taken accounting in uh, you know junior college, whatever, watched a video on accounting on YouTube, you know double entry accounting is a basic thing. You record the credit, you record the debit. One person's spending is always another person's income. If you're paying more in inflation, you're paying someone else more for whatever they're buying. Someone else is getting more money for this thing over here. So we are trying to make some sort of a sense of the world around us. And Think about the systems that we look at with children going to school, going into crime, finding out that the world isn't what they thought it was because the lies they were told in school, the lies they were told by naive parents that believe in the red, white, and blue, you know, tell their kids. Then the kids find out it's full of shit. Kids find out it isn't real. All of a sudden, the world shatters because they don't know what to do now that they realize that the stories they were told aren't the truth. I mean, think about when we were all children. I don't know. Many of y'all may or may not have had parents that did the Santa Claus bit. But I remember waking up on Christmas morning, 5.30 a.m., 4 a.m., hoping to see Santa Claus eating a cookie or dropping off the presents. Always thought of it like that. Always thought. And then when I'd wake up in the morning, because you tell you, if you're a good boy, you'll get nice presents. If you're a bad boy, you won't get good presents. You'll get a lump of coal in your stocking. Well, imagine me waking up Christmas morning and seeing a bunch of broken toys from Chinese toy party back in the 70s when things were cheap junk plastic and trash. 70s and 80s, okay? What do you think I felt like? You think I felt good about myself? No, I felt like God hated me, that 
Santa Claus was pissed at me that I was a bad little boy. Deeply hurt. It took forever. The worst day of the year for me became Christmas morning. Because I always felt like I was a bad kid. I always felt like the reason why I had shit under there was because I was such a bad kid. So you see these stories we tell because we don't take the time to understand the system. And then the real system, you can't fix the problem at the real system if you're living in the fairy tale lie of what they tell you. This is why an, a systems mind, a systems approach is so important. You cannot diagnose what is wrong with the global south if you don't understand the system with the IMF. Think about what I'm saying. There are so many systems we could go on for hours. But you must break them down. You must analyze each step in the process. And if you've got a religiously held conviction that doesn't pass muster when you see the truth of the system, it's time to change your way you think. Because the system is the system. And if you see undue influence at different breakpoints in the system, you must attack them. You must fix them. That's where you put your energy. It's not just the system, hand wave the system. The system is all the system. You got to be smarter than that. You got to be smarter than that. And this is why we keep failing over and over again. There are alt media channels out there full of piss and vinegar that don't understand systems thinking, but they got really good cut downs and comebacks on Twitter. Lots of great cut downs and comebacks. So if you're into that sort of thing, they're out there. Really want to see where the problems lie? You got to start learning how to cut and prove. You got to start learning how to break the problem down, decomposing the problem into small bite-sized chunks so that you can understand each step in the process. I'm Steve Grumbine with The Rogue Scholar, and I hope you guys learned something today. With that, guys, I am going to be on my way out of here. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support our efforts, please take a moment to subscribe and check out our other work on the Real Progress in Action YouTube channel and visit our sister organization's website at realprogressives.org.